Okay, good morning everyone. You might want to be turning to Acts chapter 18 and verse 18. Uh, We're going to be there in just a moment. Um, But I get to go off script for a moment because uh, I know it wasn't on the Sunday sheet, but I know there is a birthday in the room. Because it's my dad's birthday and he's up visiting. So happy birthday, Dad. (laughs) There he is. That was just giving you time to find Acts chapter 18, of course. We're going to read from, I'm going to read from Acts 18, verse 18, through to the end of the chapter. And we'll go from there. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cantria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go on to Achaia, The brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. We come to an interesting passage in in Acts chapter 18. There's a lot of action that's glossed over. Paul does an awful lot of traveling in in these few verses. And while he is, we focus in on what's happening with some other key people in the meantime. In one sense, it could feel a bit of a kind of transitional passage. Paul's been in Corinth, then we see all this moving about and a bit of stuff. Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila have a bit of back and forth. And then we're just kind of getting on until Paul arrives back in Ephesus in chapter 19 and we can carry things on but there's a lot here there's a lot here in these verses and we're going to look at them by looking at kind of the principal characters in these verses in turn the passage starts with Paul Paul stays in Corinth for some time And then after that, a new season begins. 
He leaves the brothers and sisters and sets sail for Syria. In effect, what we see here is Paul coming to the end of his, what's now, known, now referred to as his second missionary journey. He's going to go back home and then set off on his third missionary journey. He's setting sail for Syria, back to Antioch, his home base. We see in these next few verses to come a whistle-stop tour for Paul. Well, certainly in writing, it's only a couple of verses. don't know how long it takes. There's some time that is covered by these few verses. But we see he sets off with Priscilla and Aquila. He comes to Kentria. I realized as I was reading that, the passage, that I'd spent no time thinking how you pronounce Kentria. So this is how I'm going to pronounce it. He comes to Kentria, and there we see this curious information that he shaves his hair off because of a vow that he'd taken. We don't get any more information about this vow. It speaks very much of similarities with, with what's described as the Nazarite vow in, the, in Numbers chapter 6, this Old Testament thing, where for a time, people might dedicate themselves to the Lord in one way or another. And during that time, they wouldn't take any alcohol. In fact, nothing to do with grapes at all. No wine, but no grapes either. And they wouldn't use a razor on their head. They wouldn't shave their hair at all. They wouldn't cut their hair. So it appears this vow is coming to an end. Paul, maybe he was giving thanks to God. Maybe he'd spent some special focused time seeking God. But we're told that he shaves his head because of the vow. And we see that from there, he's then going to be heading on soon to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch. Maybe this is part of the reason why he particularly wants to go to Jerusalem. Maybe he wants to go up to the temple. It's not clear, but we see. But after Kentria, he comes to Ephesus. He arrives there. And we're told this is where he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. And he goes up to the synagogue for a bit. He reasons with the Jews. But then he leaves. They, they say, no, no, stay with us for some time. And he, but he leaves. Now, let's note at this point. In chapter 16, we read that Paul had desperately tried to get to Ephesus and the surrounding towns. What do we see in chapter, early on in chapter 16? Chapter 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Then they came to the border of Mysia, and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And then at that point, that's when they see the vi- he sees the vision of the Macedonian man calling them to come over, and they go to Philippi and Thessalonica and all those other places from there. But they've been desperately trying. Can we go in here? Can we get in here? Can we go to this place? Ephesus being one of the principal towns of that, those provinces. And he's prevented. God says No. You're not going there yet. You're not going to that place, but this is where we want to go. 
And Paul trusts God and he goes off and gets called off to, to Philippi and all the other places. But now he's got here. I've got to Ephesus. This is where I wanted to come. And what does he do? He leaves. He leaves. You could, you could think, finally, I've managed to get here. Finally, this is the place I wanted to come. Now God's opened a way for me to actually get here. He could so easily grasp at this opportunity. And the Jews in Ephesus are encouraging him, stay with us some time. But Paul knows God's got something else for him to do at the moment. In one sense, we're left a bit in the dark why it's so important that he goes to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. But we know God's calling him somewhere else. Be so easy when we've desired something. When we think, well, God's calling me to this place or to this thing or to whatever. And we get an opportunity, but we know God is saying it's not for now. So tempting to grasp and to say, I've got an opportunity. This opportunity may never come again. I better hold on to it. But we see in these, this short passage, Paul is ready to trust God. I'm going where God is taking me right now. I can't bypass that. I can't just decide, oh, well, it seems right. to be. Surely it's right for me to stay in Ephesus. They want me to stay. I wanted to come here. I've got to go up to Jerusalem. I've got to return to home base and give them the news. I've got other places to go. But if God is willing, I will be back. I will be back here. Paul is trusting his faithful guards. So easy to be bombarded with the thoughts. Paul, you've been waiting for this. This could be your only chance. This could be such a missed opportunity if you move on now. But Paul is willing to trust God for his timing. And spoilers, one chapter later, Paul will be back there for a long time. To be fair, even for us, we're left to trust God even for the reasoning we're given such, so little to go on by Luke. Luke writes it down. It's like, well, Paul was going on. He goes to Caesarea and he goes up to Jerusalem and he goes back to Antioch and then he sets off again. Why couldn't he have stayed? But Paul is ready to trust God. He trusts his faithful God. This is what I'm supposed to do now. As I say, he goes on and sails to Caesarea. And then goes up to Jerusalem where he visits the church before returning home to home base in Antioch. Where we can imagine there was a wonderful time of sharing news and being together. But Paul's come back. And they can send him out again. But for the rest of the passage, we leave Paul for a time. To focus on Priscilla and Aquila. And this guy, Apollos. We can read that Paul goes many places in the meantime. 
He sets out, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia to places he's been before, strengthening all the disciples. In the midst of all of that, we see that Paul trusts God. Then we meet this guy, Apollos. It's the first time we see him. He's described to us as a Jew from Alexandria. He comes to Ephesus. He's described as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed of the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Eloquent, learned, enthusiastic. We see later that Paul values him as a thorough laborer for the gospel. Even we see in the early chapters of his letter to the his first letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, we see they've so taken to Apollos and to Paul, some of them, that they're actually fighting over who they should follow. And Paul has to correct them. What are you bickering about? Why are you divided? Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some are saying, I follow Apollos. Others even are saying, I follow Cephas or some of the other apostles. But Paul's correction brings this. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same mission together. Apollos is doing a good work. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But it's God's mission. God's giving the growth. We're not here to follow one or the other of us. We're following God's. Paul values him as a fellow worker. There's so much to love and to recognize in Apollos. He knows the word of God. He's well-versed in the scriptures. It's in him. He knows it. He's studied it. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's a disciple. He's learned the way of God. We're told he teaches accurately. Sounds like a good guy. <laughs> Encouragement to us, do we know the truth? Are we keen to learn it? Are we, do we want to get into it, into the Word of God? Do we want to know this more and more? To be well-versed in the Scriptures, to be instructed in the ways of God, and to put it into practice. He's got real passion. He preaches with fervor the truth of the gospel. But we see this. He's a learned man. He's well-versed in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord, and yet he still needs to be taught. We read all of that. He, we get to this point. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He knew only the baptism of of John, only John's baptism. We'll see in the next chapter, spoilers, some other believers in Ephesus. Perhaps they've heard the gospel from Apollos at this point. They've not heard of the Holy Spirit. They've only received John's baptism. That's what we see in chapter 19. Sorry for whoever's coming next. 
to preach this bit. In verse, in verse, let's start from verse 2. Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul says to them, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus Maybe they had heard from Apollos. Perhaps that describes what Apollos was missing. But it points beautifully to the importance of baptism and knowing the truth. And the greatness of what Jesus has done. What does John the Baptist say himself? In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. So John, as he's out in the desert, he is baptizing people. He's calling people to come out and he's talking to them and he's baptizing them. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Paul also says in Romans chapter 6, in verse 3, he's talking about our salvation and about baptism. He says this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is so important. John the Baptist was pointing ahead to one who would come pointing to Jesus. And the fact that John would baptize people, a baptism of repentance, but he's pointing ahead to one who would come, who through his death and his resurrection would enable us to be baptized with the Spirit and with fire, to be totally cleansed, to be cleansed, to, to be given his righteousness, to be welcomed into his presence. There's nothing trivial about coming to Jesus. There's nothing trivial about what baptism symbolizes. As Paul says in those Romans verses, we have been united with Christ's death in baptism, that we may be raised to new life. In one sense, it's not just a simple washing clean. This is new life. John pointed to, he will come and he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. This is massive. Nothing less than this. This is what Jesus does. This is what he has won for us through his death and resurrection, that we may be given new life and be filled with the Spirit in order to live for him. This is what Jesus does. Believe 
and be baptized. A cleansing, yes. But he's the one who baptizes in fire and the Holy Spirit. Come, die to yourself. Come to the refiner who makes us new. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, there was a fullness of truth that Apollos was lacking. Though he's eloquent, learned, instructed in the way of the Lord, he's passionate and he can teach accurately in many ways. Yet there is always more to learn. Are we ready to learn? Are we ready to hear correction? Are we ready to be challenged? As we see Apollos, this learned, well-versed, eloquent man, he knows so much, yet he is willing to be corrected and taught. He's willing to understand there is more here that I don't yet know. We see in him a wonderful humility. You see, Apollos in humility receives the instruction of Priscilla and Aquila. Before we come to them in a moment, you could ask the question, well, who are they? There's a couple of tent makers who welcomed Paul for a time. They spent some time with Paul. You could ask the question, will this eloquent, learned man listen to these tent makers? Who are they? And yet we see the humility of Apollos and the wisdom of Apollos to listen to those who understand the truth. And he does. He does. He goes into their home. He sits with them. They discuss the truth. And consequently, he is so much better equipped to serve the church both there in Ephesus and then, as we see, they're so delighted to send him off to go to Achaia, back to, to Corinth, where we've just been with Paul. And Paulus, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. He vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debates, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. He becomes a real blessing. This man who has a lot of knowledge is humble. He's committed and passionate about the truth, but he's keen to learn and to grow. Humble enough to recognize his need and therefore, he becomes a real blessing to the believers. He learns more of God. He knows the truth more adequately, as the NIV wonderfully puts it. Because he humbly received teaching and correction, he was teachable and ready to grow. Therefore, he could be, God could use him so wonderfully to be a blessing to the church. Paul is faithfully trusting God. Apollos humbly receives correction. What do we see of Priscilla and Aquila? 
we see this couple, a couple who are massively appreciated by Paul. I don't think they are ever mentioned except together. A couple living and serving together. In the narrative, we only see them here in Acts 18. We see they've been moved out of Rome. As the emperor has kind of cleared out the Christians from Rome. And obviously last week we saw that they meet with Paul in Corinth. Now sometime later they actually come and leave Corinth. They go with Paul to go to Ephesus. And when he moves on they stay there. But we hear a few other mentions of them through Paul's letters. Later when Paul writes to Corinth... Uh, In 1 Corinthians 16, we see he includes greetings from Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their home. When writing to Timothy later on and to the Romans, he sends greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. And in Romans, we hear... In fact, I'll go there to Romans. The end of Romans... Romans chapter 16 and verse 3. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And greet also the church that meets at their house. We see from the scant and occasional references to them a beautiful godly couple, a couple who are ready to open their home that the church may meet, a couple who are ready to welcome Paul and to work with him. A couple who we hear of having no specific upfront ministry, no known teaching platform, they're not sent out to places specifically yet. In at least two places, they've opened the house and the church meets there. And Paul can reference, they are my fellow workers in Christ. And in some way that is not clear to us, they've risked their life for him. What have we seen even in this chapter? What Dan brought last week and then this week, they welcome Paul. They work together. They, they spend time with him just making tents, refreshing, being with him, restoring him, helping him. As I've said, they've opened their home to him. They opened their home to the church. It looks like in Ephesus and then in Rome. They show hospitality. They spend time with people. They're speaking of the truth together. They're living it out. And as we see in these verses, they know the truth. And they're able to instruct Apollos. They welcome in him, welcome him in. They say, come to our house. Let's look at this together. We see in them a great quality of not being afraid to challenge. 
Not being afraid to ask the question. Not being afraid to say, oh, I think there's some more for you to learn. You see, an eloquent speaker like Apollos, a guy who seems pretty charismatic and up there, he's going for it with fervor. It can feel hard to bring challenge or correction. But they do so with such grace. They take him aside into their home. And not suddenly, at the first instance, up there, out there in public, Apollos, what are you talking about? But they take him aside and they help him to know the truth more adequately. See, when we see things, we think, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. We can either often either see the great gift that a person is and therefore ignore the problems. Well, yeah, that didn't sound quite right, but it's not so bad. Or alternatively, it'd be easy to go, well, who am I to say anything? Presumably they know what they're talking about. Either, who am I to say, maybe it's me who's got it wrong, or on the other hand, just to condemn, publicly or inwardly, doesn't Apollos even know that? How can he teach others and yet get that so wrong? Don't listen to him, he's bad news. He's leading people astray. Yet with discernment and wisdom and compassion, Priscilla and Aquila do neither of those. They see, yes, he seems to have a great gift, but there's stuff he needs to know, and we can help him. And we'll see. In the first instance, maybe we're reminded in there of both the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They were more of no more noble character than the Thessalonians, and they heard what Paul said eagerly, but they went to the Scriptures. Is this true? Perhaps it could also remind us of what we're told in Matthew chapter 18. Speaking particularly when someone sins against you, but again, the principle in there. Chapter 18, verse 15 in Matthew. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Then it might escalate. If they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. But that first step. Apollos... We're not so sure about this bit. Can we talk to you about it? Can we work it out? It's a wonderful gift. Priscilla and Aquila do something so wonderful here. What a help they are. What a gift they are to the church. And to be honest, I could point out many in this room, in this church, who are so good at this. Take, us, take someone into your home, talk to them, bring wisdom, show hospitality, help just to nudge people along in their faith, bring correction where it's needed. It's so valuable, it's so good. Thank you, well done. You see, this is the church at work. We need elders, we need leaders, we need 
deacons, whether we name them or not. We need people up front at meetings and we need people in the background at meetings, but we need to be those who look after one another, who teach one another, who help one another, who are doing this incredible work like Priscilla and Aquila were doing. Where it's not all about being part of a particular team or having a particular role, but actually here we see something particularly beautiful. The church at work. Showing hospitality and love, instructing and correcting one another. And just living out their lives as a proclamation of the gospel. Because the danger is we could think, that's just insignificant really. We could think it of them. Well, who are they? What did Priscilla and Aquila actually do? Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying exactly the opposite. They are my fellow workers. They risk their life for me. They are so valuable. Or we could think it of ourselves. What am I here for? What am I doing? What's my role? I think the great message of Priscilla and Quilla is no, don't think that. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They're so valuable. Each part of the body is so important. And in saying that, I can hear the objection of Dash in The Incredibles. As Elastigirl, his mother, if you don't know The Incredibles, you'd be lost now. As Elastigirl, his mum, everyone's special, Dash. That's the same as saying no one is. That's Dash's objection. But it's true here. We all have a part to play. We all have a job to do. It's all significant in the kingdom of God. Not because we have significance, but because God is at work in and through his people. See, Dash could think, well, maybe we're just being told we're all, doesn't really matter. Over Christmas, once again, as always, every year we watched It's a Wonderful Life. You see, the, the principal character, George Bailey, is desperate to do something big. Something big in my life. I'm going to build things. I'm going to go out and see the world. I'm going to do something massive. And as his life looks to be falling apart, he contemplates, what's the point? What have I done? It'd be better if I'd never been born. And the wonder of that film is that George Bailey is given the opportunity to see what would it be like if all those supposedly insignificant things you were involved in had never happened, George. A whole town is ruined and beyond. Don't underestimate how God wants to use you in the insignificant little things of life. Apollos would go on to encourage many churches. He could do that because Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and said, 
know this too. This is the real truth. Paul is faithfully trusting God. Apollos is humble and willing to learn. Priscilla and Aquila are faithfully serving God in their day-to-day lives. You see, this passage can seem like a bit of a transition. There's comings and goings, there's meetings and partings before Paul arrives in Ephesus once again, and we can think, oh, that's when the story kicks off again. But here, actually, we're seeing three great examples of how we can follow our Saviour. Let's trust God. Let's stay humble. Let's keep on faithfully serving him in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then let's worship.